reading this morning from Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful that you loved us enough to send your Son to clothe us in his righteousness. Through your incredible gift, you remove the barriers of pride that allow us to believe we are somehow better than our brother or sister. As you have clearly reminded us, there is no distinction. We are all equally guilty before you as sinners. However, when we place our full faith and confidence in you, we are all given an eternal inheritance and hidden in Christ. Thank you so much for giving us a new identity in you. Speak powerfully this morning through Patrick today as he teaches us through your word. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Christopher Church. You can be seated. Good morning. Thought I'd let you know I had a nightmare last night. Anybody here still have nightmares? It's not like of scary stuff. There's no blood or gore. No one's dying. Um, those really don't scare me anymore. And it's not public speaking, certainly, because I do this. That's pretty fine. My nightmare, if I can tell you it for a second, is I showed up here at my normal time, and a service was already going. That was my nightmare. I, I showed up, and everyone was here, and Daniel was just playing worship. And I asked him, dude, what's going on? It's like an hour early. He says, well, everyone is here. I thought we'd just get started. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm, but I'm not ready. I didn't print out my notes. I'm, I, I was in shorts, uh, board, I was board shorts, a tank top, and flip-flops. I'm like, I still got to get changed. I mean, normally I have those nightmares, and I, this time wasn't so bad because I had clothes on, but sometimes that, that's even worse. <laughs> In reality, that feeling of you wake up, oh, that euphoria, euphoria, oh, it was a dream. Oh, it's a fantastic feeling. You had that? You know what I'm talking about? Now, maybe there's another feeling you've had that's similar, maybe something like it. Maybe you're, there's someone in your life um, that you're having an argument, a disagreement with, and you know you have the evidence to prove your case. It's like in your back pocket. And you're just waiting to drop that bombshell. Because when you do, you know they're going to go on complete damage control. You're going to watch them flounder, and you got them. Anybody know what that feeling is like? I don't. I've, I've tried that. I mean, I think I know, but it's never worked out quite that way, all right? This morning, the reason why I share that is because I think the Apostle Paul has evidence to prove his case that he's been arguing in the, in the book of Romans so far. He's been, we're going through the book of Romans. It's a series called The Reign of Grace. So he's been presenting that we are justified according to faith, not of works. Faith in Christ nothing that we have done. And last week, Pastor Jeff rolled out that we don't have the ability to boast in anything that we've done. And so he wants to try to prove his case in his argument. And so I believe he has the evidence to do so today. I believe he's confident in what he's going to be able to present. But one thing that's really clear, the reason why this needs, the book of Romans needs to be written is because you have a fractured church in Rome. You have a, a body of believers that are being pulled in two different directions. One is potentially a Gentile direction. One is a Jewish direction. And there was a time when it was truly, in Rome, a Jewish church with, with a lot of Jewish overtones and imp, um, emphasis. However, the Jews had been exiled from Rome for a number of years, about five, 
And during that time, the Gentile church took a predominant role to establish right practice. And so now, these two groups have come back together, and they're struggling. Who has the authority? Who has the grounds upon which um, they can articulate their point, and what is the right practice of faith? And so Paul's writing to a fractured church, trying to unite them into one shared faith. He's writing to them so that they can be unified. They can exemplify what Christ said, may they be one as you and I are one. And so what I want to point out, what we're going to look at today is what faith does. We know what faith is. Faith is trusting reception of a free gift. But what does faith do in the life of the believer? I think that's Paul's argument. And so when we're going to t- well, as we talk about faith, as we prevent it, we're go- or present it, we're going to argue for the sufficiency of faith alone to justify us, to save us. But we also must make mention that really he's writing a case against works of the law or following the Torah. Here are the commands of God that you have to, to fulfill in order to be saved. These are the two options that are being presented. But I want to make clear that as we present what faith does, that doesn't necessarily mean that faith is alone. We're going to look at that when we come to the end. It doesn't make works of the law and obeying God anything inferior or less important. So today we examine what faith does and by extension what the works of the law were designed to do and not to do. And so we'll explore two parts that are very important to Paul, two patriarchs, two important people that articulate Paul's point and they prove it. It is Abraham and it is David. Before we jump to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and, and read through that together, I'd like for you to pray with me one, one more time. Our Lord and our God, I ask you, I ask your spirit to be powerful in our midst today, that you bring to remembrance the things that you've already taught us, and you open our eyes to see and ears to hear that which you would like for us to believe and to practice. So God, be the teacher this morning. Allow us to be involved in your, and to recognize your presence and to be involved in your ministry here in Idaho Falls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're in your notes and you have them with you, I'd love for you to follow along. The first thing we're going to recognize that Paul presents is that faith receives what works cannot achieve. First part of his argument, faith receives what works cannot achieve. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I hope you read along. What then will we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So Paul has stated a definitive claim, and he has to prove it. His claim that God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus apart from works. And so we've defined faith. I just mentioned it, but here it is again. Or Pastor Jeff mentioned it, uh, defined it, and we've mentioned it. Tr- faith is trusting reception of a free gift. That's what faith is. And so part one of his argument to prove that, to truly um, uh, give credence to the fact that faith, we're justified by faith, was last week's message. It's a logical case stating that grace cancels all boasting specifically boasting in our personal achievements. There's nothing I can do, say, that I can look to or point to before God and convince Him that I ought to be saved. Grace cancels all boasting because grace is unmerited favor. It's nothing I've done to earn. It must be given. And so now he pulls out that trump card. So he, he talked about this last week, and now he says to his opponents, let's look at Abraham. Let's look at his life. If Does his life satisfy the claim that we are justified by faith alone. 
But to do that, we have to understand a little bit who Abraham was to the Jews. Ultimately, Abraham is the paragon of, Jewish under, of, of the Jewish understanding of God's redemptive plan. It began with Abraham, and so everything must flow out of Abraham. If it's not connected to Abraham, well, it really has no merit. So Paul needs to connect his argument to the very core of Jewish thought and belief. Abraham is the ancestral beginning of the Jewish people and the archetype of what it meant to be faithful to the law. We look to Abraham, he is the example. So Paul must prove that justification was not applied to Abraham because of his actions or even who he was. He must prove that God justified Abraham according to the principle of faith, to the sufficiency of faith. So the principle of trusting reception of a free gift, well, why does he have to do this? Not just because it's the beginning of their faith, but actually, being well-schooled in Pharisaical thought, Paul knows that his opponents will actually use Abraham to prove justification actually comes by works. So Paul preemptively takes Abraham and says, he is actually a, an evidence for this case, justified by faith, not justified by works. And so ultimately, we have to, I want you to read some ancient Jewish texts, so they're not Scripture, I'm not quoting them as authoritative, but I want you to see and read them with me so that you get an understanding of what the Jewish mindset was according to Abraham. Ultimately, we're going to show that Abraham did not impress God. Abraham did not impress God. So Abraham is revered by the Jews, and let's read some passages to give us some understanding of why he's revered. So Jubilees 23.10. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The prayer of Manasseh, chapter 8, Abraham did not sin against you. First Maccabees, was not Abraham found faithful when tested and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Sirach, 44, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tested, proved faithful. All right, so when you re- as you read through those, does that begin to give you a picture of how you viewed Abraham? What's the common thread in each of these quotations? Well, ultimately, what I, we can deduce is that Abraham either never sinned or reached a point of per- perfect adherence to the law, which secured his righteousness. And so Paul rightly is taking issue with this common assumption. Abraham, does he have something to boast about? According to these passages, it would warrant so, that he does have something to boast about. But Paul's saying, no, that can't be true. No one can boast before God. And Abraham is no different than any of us. Before Abraham lived up to God's standard, he first lied about his wife in Egypt being his sister. He had a kid with his maidservant instead of his wife, whom God promised, not to mention the countless times he doubted or even laughed at God's promise of saying, I will give you a son through Sarah, your 90-year-old wife. This is what took place prior to Abraham believing God and accounting to him as righteousness. So all of these failures... God simply continued to reassure his promise. And Abraham did what? He believed. Abraham was justified for his belief apart from the finished work, the finished works that he would entail. There's even a hint and an idea in some writings that the reason why God chose Abraham was because he was this religious, pious person prior to coming to the promised land 
that for some reason he saw his, his dad's idols and he tore them down. And so he was this holier-than-thou person, and so he impressed God enough to say, you're the one who I'm going to work with. Is that how God's grace works? No, God chooses Abraham because he chose Abraham. His grace is a mystery. It is surprising. It's nothing that we can uh, curtail, influence, impact to get a better result for ourselves. Abraham did not impress God. So his works couldn't do it. His works couldn't bring about justification. So does Abraham have something to boast about? Well, if he does, then faith is not what Paul reports it to be. And the legalists, those who say you are justified by keeping the works of the law, well, they have a point. But if Abraham doesn't have something to boast about, then faith is the only means, it's the only way to receive justification because God's not going to change his disposition towards us based on what we do. Which is why it brings the second point. Paul quotes that God is not obligated, period. God has no obligations. Is God, read verses 4 and 5 with me. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So Paul is posing a question. Is God ever obligated to anyone? Is there ever a situation in which God owes someone something? Well, simply no. Based on him being the creator of all things and sustainer of all things, we are obligated to him. We owe God everything. We owe him all of our worship, our reverence, and our obedience. So think of it this way. If I keep the law, what am I doing? I am merely fulfilling the obligation that I already have, that, I, that you and I are born into. Yet if we don't keep the law perfectly, we owe more than our original obligation. Now we have a debt to owe. So if you begin to think about it, well, I'll just work it off. I'll perform more good works to offset that which I've fallen. But every good work that you can perform already is accounted for. There is no more good works that you can perform that don't already fall under a current obligation. So how can works save you? You can't earn something from God. They're already accounted for. Well, there's only one thing left to be given something rather than to achieve something. Our good works and law-keeping are something that we will do because God has commanded, but it's justification and righteousness that comes through that is only received through faith. It's the only plausible way. Abraham is the archetype for all who follow now. And if this is true, then it should continue throughout Scripture. So if Abraham shows that we are justified by faith alone, there's no works that we can perform to achieve this justification and righteousness, then, then it should be throughout Scripture. And so that's exactly what Paul does. Paul presents evidence for the validity of his arguments in the words of King David. And he reveals point number two, faith delivers what works cannot. Faith delivers what works cannot. Read 6, 7, and 8 with me. Likewise, David, who speaks of the blessing of a person to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. So as any good Pharisee would do, Paul appeals to the authority of Scripture first from the law. He looks at, at Abraham and says, the argument is justified in his living, but then secondly, from the prophets and the writings. This is the second Old Testament genre. So Paul is going to show from two different genres that faith alone is the means for salvation. Equivalent or similarly, we do this when we attest to something from the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
We're showing that there is a common thread, a belief held over great time, and it's a continuation. And so Paul attests to King David in Psalm 32. That's exactly what we just read. And what does it convey? That faith delivers a blessing. Faith delivers blessing. So David's saying a forgiven person is a blessed person. A forgiven person is supremely blessed. They're supremely fortunate. They are well off. They are content, happy, established. And so let's read the first five verses of Psalm, one, or excuse me, Psalm 32 to give us a great understanding and depth of what's going into Paul's quote. So starting in verse 1 and 2, let's reread this. Again, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, whose spirit there is no deceit. So this is his thesis. This is what David's presenting as reality. This is the way life is. A blessed person is a forgiven person. And that blessed person is forgiven in their sins presently. In every sin that has been committed and every sin that is being committed That's the action and activity going on in verses 1 and 2. There is a blessedness, but now he needs to prove it. Now, why is that the case? Why is that the standard that David is proclaiming? Look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So he's proving his case by presenting what, what preceded the blessing anguish, floundering, depression, potentially anxiety, uncertainty, great doubt. But why? Because his sin existed, but it was kept silent. Nothing was being done about it. The sin he was conscious of and aware of was like a a plant weathering under the heat of the sun, withering, excuse me, withering under the heat of the sun. That's what it felt like. Can you believe that? Can you attest to a similar thing David is presenting? But you know what he's probably um, connecting this story to? His great sin with Bathsheba, sleeping with a woman who wasn't his wife, having a baby with her, and then killing her actual husband by putting him on the front lines in battle, ensuring that he could get away with his own sin, keeping silent about it. And yet, did that produce any joy? Was that a blessed life? No, it's far from it. Without the forgiveness of God, he felt guilt, sorrow, and shame, and that was crushing him. And with the help of the prophet Samuel, the Lord gets his attention, and he continues in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, the forgiveness he received and experienced was not the result of works or human effort. That was the previous two verses. That was him trying to make amends for it, hiding it, pretending like it never happened. That's his works was able to accomplish. Guilt, sorrow, shame, depression, being crushed, withering on the vine. That's what works produced. That's what works delivered. But what did faith deliver? Forgiveness. Both Abraham and David are recipients of God's unearnable favor and blessing. And it's not just for these men. Verses 1 and 2 make really clear anyone who experiences this forgiveness in faith is blessed, is highly exalted, is happy, is joyful. This is for all people all time. 
There is no condition in which the forgiveness of God will not be applied to any person. Every sin you have committed and every sin you will commit is forgiven at the cross and applied to you and I in faith. So this rich blessing of faith, it's unmerited forgiveness. David and Abraham did nothing to deserve it, and that's a wonderful blessing. So on the counter end, is, does, does the law and obeying God have any blessing or merit? Yeah, it certainly does. It absolutely does, but it doesn't have the ability to save. So where is that blessing found? So if we can understand what both blessings are, so we can understand the nature of what God intended with the law and with faith and forgiveness through faith, what's the blessing that comes through the law? I think it goes all the way back to creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28. The, f- the first thing God speaks to Adam and Eve, the first thing He says to them is what? A blessing. This is unmerited favor. Adam and Eve did nothing to earn it or to gain it. God created them and out of His own character and nature says, I want to bless them. And this is what He says in verse 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. What is the blessing? The blessing is a command to follow. The grace God gives Adam and Eve and all of creation that follow after them is a command to follow. Every command that God has issued is a blessing to us. Why? Because ultimately, the law, the extension of it, centuries later, as Moses ascribes it into being, is to know God and to be godly. Without the law, we don't know that. To know God and to be godly is impossible to follow, to lay hold of, to grasp if I don't have the law. So how do these two relate? How is the, the law of grace and the, the reign of grace, the law of grace and the law of spirit, commingle, if you will? How do we relate the two? So a couple weeks ago, Payson and I went on our first downhill mountain biking up at Kelly. We went on space cruise. It was phenomenal. We did a great job. It was, it was awesome. We did fall, though. And it, it was bound to happen, makes, makes no doubt about it. Um, it, we came out okay. He came out a little worse than I, I know how to fall. I mean, I say that. I got lucky. I was coming down and all the, the quads, the ATVers and the dirt bikers have rutted everything up. I don't have a dog in that fight. I'm just saying it. So maybe you care. I don't know. And so I'm trying to follow a line and I, I'm following where I think the bikes are going and there's this huge drop off and I go off and I make the drop off, but then there's a big rock and I smack that and I go flying. Luckily, I land in this like powder sugary sand dirt. It was like hitting a pillow. It was phenomenal. My son, not so uh, lucky. He hit the rut, his tire went in, and he went flying, and he has a nice scratch up and down here. Okay, so the reason why I use this analogy is to say the law of God is that mountain biking path. It is the way to go. That is the path. You stay on it. If you leave that path, there are dangers. There are things that you will run into most certainly. And it can be dangerous. In this case, it would be the extent of running into something, breaking a limb to the extent where you can no longer ride and keep to that path. Now, can that path help you and mend what is broken in you? No, it can't. That path just shows you who God is and which way to go. But it doesn't have the ability to mend you. The blessing is knowing. The blessing is not mending. But justification through faith is the means by which we are mended. It is the blessing of a physician or nurse who can look at a wound and mend it. 
This is the unique differences between the two. They're both blessings, but one can produce and deliver a richer, deeper, more encompassing blessing than the other because we have fallen off that bike path. We have wounded ourselves to the extent we need resuscitated. We need our heart to live again. So what should that do to those who are forgiven? Because that's the other evidence to look at what faith can deliver. That works can't. Faith results in praise. Faith delivers a praise and the ability to rejoice in a way works can't. Let's look at the end of Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So justification encompasses much more than forgiveness but blessing resulting in praise. The blessed person, conscious of their wrongdoing and condemnation, instead receives a pardon. They're acquitted. And what do they do after hearing that verdict? They rejoice. They are set free. They're able to rejoice and to praise God without the wounds, without the burden, without, like David's saying, sin, silent, crushing the soul. The soul is now free. I've been pardoned. Can works produce a similar type of rejoicing? If, if your pursuit and my pursuit is to have a list of do's and don'ts, and my joy in life is to see more boxes checked than not, will I ever rejoice in the same way David is exalting here? No, I can't because I'm always reminded of how much I fall short. I'm always reminded by those around me who are, who are far more diligent at obeying the Scriptures. Just like Paul, I was a Jew amongst Jews. I've done everything. I've kept every iota. And Paul doesn't rejoice in this way, in this manner. Works can't deliver the ability to rejoice the way faith does. Certainly not with the same vigor and the same joy. So faith receives grace in the way works can't achieve it. Faith delivers a blessing and the ability to rejoice in a way works can't. But then the next, faith unites what works cannot. Faith unites what works cannot. Verses 9 through 12, is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Well, in, in what way was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? We're going to hear the word circumcised and uncircumcised. This is the relationship between Jew and Gentile, those who are of the covenant people of God and those who aren't. So when you read those two words, it's signifying two groups of people. But it also signifies, based on works, when something was accomplished, when it was accredited. It was not while he was circumcised, but when he was actually uncircumcised. And he receives the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be accredited to them. So anybody who is not of the Jewish people, faith and righteousness is now accredited to them. Verse 12, and he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but also follow in his footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. All right, so he says that a bunch. Makes, maybe felt a little uncomfortable how many times we said circumcised there. Yet as a Gentile, what he's communicating to those inside this fractured church, you were never entirely accepted in the people of God as the Jews. There was always a barrier. There's not necessarily an exclusion, but there was a recognition 
that you could fear God, you could follow God, you, you could obey the commandments. Shoot, you can even get circumcised if you want, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were never your patriarchs. They weren't your fathers. That belonged to the Jews. And yet with a pen stroke, Paul tears down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in a way not possible before. The patriarch Abraham is not just a father to the Jews, but to everyone of faith. He is more of a father to everyone through faith than he ever was through blood lineage. Dr. Moo writes this in one of my commentaries, and I, I, I read it to you because I think it, it points something very interesting. For, for, from the standpoint of faith, Abraham is far more the ancestor of the Jewish people. For he is the father of all who believes as he himself did. God's people are determined not by biological descent from Abraham, but by spiritual descent from him. The people of God are no longer descendants just biologically. It is a spiritual descendant. It's a family tree of faith that we track through from Adam or Abraham. He is the paragon. He is still our, our picture of what it means to follow God, to believe him. And to obey him. We look to Abraham for that example. And so why is he saying this to this church? Faith is the means now that brings this church together. Faith is what unifies us. Our shared faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection binds people together that otherwise could never be bound together. That's true for us today in this room. There are so many different things about us that bring us together that only faith could unite us. Uh, Alan Gunn, one of our elders, our chairman of our elder board, is fond of saying we are not a non-denominational church. We are a multi-denominational church. In this church, we have Baptists, former Baptists, Episcopals, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Free Church, and there's probably little divisions under each one of those titles too. And each one of those comes with a recognition of what it means to practice your faith. Some are high church, some are low church. Some have uh, rich music in the hymns, some others very contemporary. Well, how, how do we all come together and worship? How are we able to get along? There are members of this church who were born in 1930s, and there's those who were born this summer. There's distinctions in this room based on preferences, giftings, unique differences that if it were up to works, we would not be in this room together. If works justified us and brought us together, we would be a much smaller community. Now, why would that be? Because if works were the, what signified us and separated us from the world, we would have to codify everything that it meant to be a Christian at Christ Community Church. And anybody that does not meet that list, that codified list, you would be excluded and that list would only grow. See, the ability for us to gather and to be a 600-person church with all of our distinctions and divisions and squabblings and frustrations is because at the end of the day, we, are, we know we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. There is one baptism, one faith, and one spirit that unites us. Paul advocates for this, and this is what he's presenting to the church in Rome. See, the law reveals ultimately our alienation from God, but then that extenuates itself, it ex extends itself into our separation from one another. We've forgotten what it's like to relate. It's not easy. And so works alone ultimately produce in us a desire to achieve. And if there's things I have to do to achieve, there's expectations of rewards. And so we'd be seeking a reward. And in that mindset, I would isolate myself from you because I'm competing against you in some form, in some fashion. And so division in the people of God served no purpose. They ultimately produced no blessing. 
Yet there are distinctions among us that God has made unique, but we are able to still unify with those distinctions being highlighted. Those distinctions are not divisions. What unites us is a shared faith and a shared inheritance. Ruth me in Galatians. Uh, Christopher read, for the, read this for us at the beginning of the service, but I'd like to read it again. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ. You are all the people of God or the family of God because of faith. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. This is your new identity. Verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, next week, Pastor Ryan's going to get into more of the, the, the life of Abraham and the promise, but I'm going to mention to you right here because Abraham is given the promise in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and again a, little chapter, a couple chapters later in Genesis that you will be a nation that blesses the whole earth. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. You will be a people and you as a people are not in jeopardy. You will always be a part of something wonderful, powerful that God has promised. You have a place. You have a home. This is true of us. What is our inheritance? An eternal destiny in which we are with God as Adam and Eve were with God, to know God and to obey God simply. It's no longer work. It's not difficult. It's not challenging. There's no longer a fleshly battle going inside us. That's what we get to inherit. That's the promise of eternity, to dwell upon eternity, to think about heaven and then being reborn and remade here on the new heavens and new earth captivate us, and that's what will bind us together as a people as a people of God. So how can you argue with this evidence that Paul presents here now? That faith receives what works cannot achieve, faith delivers what works can't deliver, and then faith unites what works can't unite. What do you do when that argument is presented? How, how would you do that? I don't think most legalists would look at this. I think there's a bit of a sidestepping that goes on. And instead of accusing and making the assumption that we are justified by works, Instead, it turns to an accusation of those who profess we are justified by faith alone. The accusation is, then you don't care about works. You don't care about the law. You don't care about obeying God then. If it's all about grace, then you clearly don't want to follow God. And God made very clear in the Old Testament that that shouldn't be the case. Well, that's really important. And Paul makes the argument that faith justifies alone, but faith is not alone. Faith justifies alone, but faith is not alone. Back in verse 11, he describes Abraham and says, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This, this act, this act of obedience in, be, in being circumcised and being set apart, distinct, God's chosen person, separate from the rest of the world, is a sign, it's an external display of what took place when he believed God and trusted in his promise. This is really important. This is why the Apostle James powerfully conveys in his epistle the importance of good works in the life of the believer. He says, faith without works is dead. It's because it was never really alive. The faith you possess was an intellectual faith, not a genuine faith if you don't have the works that go along with and proceed out of the faith that has justified you. 
In fact, in two weeks, what, what Pastor Jeff's going to do is walk through James's argument of justification, uh, what it looks like, justification by works, and Paul's pre- presentation of justification by faith, because James will actually quote the very things Paul just quoted. But, all, but it, what it looks like on the surface is that it's proving the opposite case. Because James will even say, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac on the altar? I thought Paul just said we're justified by faith alone, not in works. Now, I'm not gonna, I don't have time to walk through this argument. Jeff's going to do it in two weeks. But what I will present you is the conclusion that James and Paul are not at odds. They're answering two different objections. Paul is answering the objection as one is saved by works, Paul, excuse me, James is answering the objection, you don't care about works. And so Paul is one with James in insisting that genuine Christians must always reveal the transforming work of God in a new life of obedience. This distinction we're suppo- are, are supposed to make, first and foremost, that faith alone changes our status before God, not works, but works naturally flow from this transformation. And so we believe good works accompany faith as a constant reminder that we're justified. And so if I pull out my phone and, and, and I, I show you a picture, you would all say, who, what, who is this? Well, it's my family. But I'd ask, is this my family? No, it's not. It's an arrangement of pixels that depict or show or display my family, but it's not really my family. They're in a car at home. First service, there was a baby crying over here. That's my family. But it's an accurate representation of who they were when that picture was taken. Your works, your good works, your obedience to the law, keeping to that mountain bike path as you go down, are the evidence of the faith that you believe that set you on that path to begin with. They are pictures, images, and reminders of what your faith was like at the time you performed that good work. There are examples of it, but that has no ability to save. So works are not our salvation, but they're the tangible representation of our salvation, which is why he says in verse 11, he was circumcised as a seal, as a reminder, as the guarantee recognition that we are saved, a transformation that becomes more and more apparent as time passes. And so as you leave here today, I want you to consider what faith does in your life. Is faith an active component in that greater transformation into the image and likeness of Christ? And so first, we have to ask a simple question. Are you trying to find and earn favor with God? I think you and I should examine our motivation for why we choose to obey. If it's to impress rather than to enjoy Him, there's a serious trust issue taking place in our heart. Instead, we must trust in faith that He already loves us He already adores us, and He is willing and desires to lavishly bless us with His grace. We don't have to earn it any longer. So what's my motivation for obedience? Next, in some way, anybody in here when they've committed a sin, you you don't have to raise your hand, uh, but we all could, all right? You've committed a sin, and your first thought, after you sin, your first thought is, this is what I must do. I need to go to church. I need to vote myself. I need to read the Word. If our first thought after sinning in that guilt and re- recognition that David found himself in says, I must do something, we've done something wrong. We've started in a secondary place. What should we have done first? We need to seek forgiveness. We need to go before the throne and confess just like David did and retrieve that blessing that David conveys 
And so do we petition God for forgiveness? Next, how curious are you to remember what you're forgiven of? In this day and time, are you able to find and lay hold of the blessing of God because you've already been forgiven? Can you say that you are blessed beyond measure today? Can you articulate what is worthy of praise and rejoicing today? If remembering what we've been forgiven is not on our agenda regularly, we need to reconsider what we're prioritizing in our thought life. I don't say to do that to recall guilt and shame. That's not why I recall it. I recall it so that I can be reminded and experience the joy of being set free once again. But to those of you in here who don't have faith, who couldn't articulate whether you believe or don't believe, maybe you're indifferent, I would be curious, why don't you have faith? Why don't you have faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection? What is keeping you outside of this united body and family? In what ways are you unconvinced? Is it for a lack of evidence? Is it a lack of desire? Is it just mere indifference or is there some other reason? Maybe there's nothing prompting you. Maybe you think that trail ride is going to go on for a significant period of time so there's nothing pressing upon you to even make a decision. I will convey to you, and what I believe is true because my brothers and sisters in here all testify it, to it, and certainly David does, apart from the forgiveness we find in Christ at the cross, everyone in here is seeking and searching for a way to justify themselves, justifying our actions, our thoughts, and our desires. The world, the culture teaches this, that what you have to do in order to find and to release that guilt, to unhitch yourself from that shame, is to merely justify and to legalize everything that you do, that it's okay and it's fine. And you'll find groups of people willing to do that. That doesn't take away that internal pressure and withering on the vine that David describes, you know it to be true. I would ask, would you seek Christ and enjoy the rich blessing that so many in here profess to have so that you too can profess what David sings about when he says, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never again charge with sin. I would pray that those of you in here who have already recognized that, that as we turn to a time of worship, you can recall the rich blessing that you have in Christ. And for those who have not experienced or know that blessing and don't know faith, there are brothers and sisters, certainly after the service, who want to pray with you to guide you into the rich blessing of what it means to be justified in Christ apart from works and solely in the finished work of Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, I ask for the ability of your spirit to remind us of the things you've taught us, to remind us of what we've been forgiven for, to be set free from, that we may rejoice abundantly, that we may lay hold of the blessing that you have given us, that we may not look to another or another thing. So lead us now into the freedom that we can find in knowing that your son accomplished for us what we could, could not. And I pray for those in here, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you do not know of this blessing, I would ask that you would consider trusting in his finished work, that those who believe and seek forgiveness are forgiven. Would you confess that Christ is Lord? Would you confess that he is both Lord and Messiah over your life, and you will be set free in a capacity that you have not known? Give us the ability to worship you and in spirit and truth right now, Father. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.